one of the biggest things in self-care truly we hear we hear about this term self-care is removing yourself from toxic relationships it wreaks havoc on our brains and our bodies to be in unhealthy toxic relationships welcome to the podcast by mikhail alfon Before we get into this episode of the podcast, I wanted to ask you a question. Are you looking to launch your own podcast? If you are, you have to check out Mike Me Audio. My podcast would not sound nearly as amazing as it does if it wasn't for their help. And I frequently recommend them to my clients at Blue Light so you know it's legit. They have a full suite of services to help you launch your own show from ear-catching intros, editing services, and they'll even help you publish your finalized episodes. Now, they've worked with shows like Brittany Crystal's Beyond Influential, Libsyn's The Feed, so you know you're in good company. So if you're looking to launch your own podcast, and you know I recommend you should if you're building a personal brand or a business, just mention my name to nick at mikeme.com, and you'll get your first episode edited for free. Again, reach out to nick at mikeme.com. That's N-I-C-K at MikeMe.com, and they'll edit your first episode for free when you mention this show. But before I speak too much, let's get on to the podcast. What's up, Socialite, and welcome to another episode of the podcast. Our guest today is a psychotherapist and mental health professional who's passionate about evidence-based mental health care, relationships, and overall wellness. She's mentored and taught master's students in the areas of conceptualization, emotionally focused therapy, and family systems. Today, she continues to supervise master's level students in their personal and professional development. In addition to that, she also works as the program manager at Pace Recovery, a premier young adult treatment center in Costa Mesa, California, in the mental health residential program. There, she helps in the treatment of young men 18 and over for complex issues ranging from trauma, grief, severe depression, and anxiety, and thought disorders. I'm beyond excited to have this conversation with her today, but before I speak too much, please join me in welcoming Dr. Natalie Zaragoza onto the show. How are you today? Hi, I'm doing good. I'm so happy to be here. Thank you for inviting me. I'm pumped on it too. So I could easily jump into all of these questions because I have so many for Mm -hmm. you. But to the listener who might not know you yet, can you tell us a little bit about yourself? Sure. Um, So I'm Natalie, uh, Natalie, Dr. Natalie, Dr. Zaragoza. I was just telling you that it's uh, weird when you get the title doctor, people do all kinds of things with it. Um, So whatever you want to call me is fine. Um, Let's see. I I work as a therapist. So I think that I have a lot of roles, but that's my main role. Um, I'm also a teacher and a mentor. Um, Mm -hmm. And like you mentioned, I also help run a program, a mental health residential program. So handling pretty intense mental health cases. And did you grow up in California? I did. So I was born and raised in uh, Norco, California, Mm -hmm. uh, which is like in the Corona area. Um, So I've been in Southern California my whole life, went to grad school here, went to undergrad here. So this is my spot. And now you're practicing in Orange County. Yeah, just right down the street. Um, I could have walked here. I didn't, (laughs) but I could have. You know, I feel like we could have a ton of conversations around this. Um, I don't—the listener knows, but for me, like, I'm obsessed with the idea of kind of positive thinking your way through things. Mm-hmm. Um, but in addition to that, too, I I have a lot of concerns as to what's going on sort of on the digital landscape. And one of the concerns that I have is things like depression and anxiety— those types of terms get kind of overused. Mm-hmm. And and I don't really, you know, it's it's hard. Like, I, I just, 
I've been through a lot of things. I've seen a lot of people mm-hmm. go through a lot of things. And it's like, are we really feeling anxious? Or, or I mean, are are we suffering from anxiety? And are we diagnosed with anxiety? Or is it, or are we just feeling anxiousness? Like a normal human feeling. Mm-hmm. Um, have you seen any of that going on? Yeah, definitely. I think um, we see like a lot of pop psychology on Instagram and Facebook and things like that. Um, definitely a lot of people describing themselves as depressed, as anxious. And you mentioned that you appreciate context, uh, things being contextualized for you. And I think uh, there's a big difference between feeling anxious. Um, we all have, um, we, we're all anxious. I think all of life, you know, has some anxiety. Anxiety is necessary um, for us to feel a sense of urgency, uh, to feel, um, you know, that something needs to change. We feel anxious when, when, when we're threatened. That's sort of innate in us. So some anxiety is healthy as normal. Uh, some of us also get depressed every now and again. But when you look at it in a clinical context, it looks a lot different. Um, and a, a diagnosis of uh, major depression or a diagnosis of an anxiety disorder, um, you do have to meet certain criteria. Right. And so I think there could be two sides of that. Um, we could look at it from different angles. I'm glad that the conversation is happening around mental health, Mm. Um, but also it could be very invalidating for people who have like really severe depression and for their, um, you know, to be a colloquial term of like, oh, I'm so depressed when it's like you're bummed out and you're sad and that needs some validation too, but it looks a lot differently than, you know, clinical depression. What kind of work have you done in the past to start like not really understanding, but what kind of work have you done in the past to kind of, uh, maybe decipher between like clinical depression and somebody that's just feeling sad for a day? Yeah. I'm so glad you asked this question. So, um, you know, life can be sad. Uh, life can be traumatic. Um, we all go through stuff. I, I get, you know, super down sometimes. That's normal. Uh, we want to feel up and downs as humans, right? Because that means that we're engaged. We're affected and things are, you know, we're present. Um, clinical depression. Um, so we, we look at a couple different things. Um, clinical depression, we're really looking at major depressive disorder. Um, there's a couple other uh, similar diagnoses, um, but when somebody is describing somebody's clinically depressed, they tend to mean a major depression. And that means that you've had a major depressive episode and you've had serious symptoms of depression that last at least two weeks um, or more. So you're feeling the symptoms consistently um, for at least two weeks. And it does have to um, a, a sort of a caveat in our in our diagnosis um, text is it does have to impair you know a major life role um, because if it doesn't then we might look at some things like maybe some situational depression or maybe you're feeling really really sad yeah or also when you some say that like, like are you when you say that like it has to impact a major life role mm-hmm. like I'm no longer able to perform my job yeah. Mm. Correct. Um, my relationships are suffering. I'm calling out of work. I had I need a grocery shop for two weeks and I haven't been able to get out of bed. Um, those are the things that we're looking at. We see people dropping out of school, um, you know, people at risk of losing their jobs and things like that. That's what we really look at when we're looking at diagnosing these mental health disorders like depression. What about anxiety? That's that's one that I think is and by the way, to the listener, like, I have complete empathy for anybody that is really suffering mm-hmm. from this as well. However, I, I really do believe that the—and I'm excited to talk about this about you. I, I really do believe that we have to address it differently. I, I, I truly believe that if somebody continues saying, like, 
I get anxiety when, I get anxiety when, I get anxiety when, like it's going to manifest itself into like anxiety that didn't have to be there, but mm-hmm. you kept telling yourself that without really understanding what you were talking about. I forgot my what my question would be. <laughs> <laughs> That's <laughs> so, okay. You know, I'm like, <laughs> I'm just like doing the thing that I always do, but like, I forgot what the question would be to be honest, but like, uh, w- when it comes to anxiety, like how can somebody start to decipher the difference between like feeling anxious for a moment? Cause like, I just finished sweating after you got here. Mm-hmm. I think a little bit was yeah, like— Yeah, it was a little warm. It was a, Okay, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> it was a little warm running up and down the stairs, all that. But like, you know, how do we how do we start to identify the differences between like feeling a little nervous before mm-hmm. a meeting and what true anxiety might look like? And what does that look like? So there's a couple key things that we would look for. Just like uh, we were talking about depression a moment ago, and we're looking for— uh, symptoms that are that are uh, that are happening, and that looks like you know if we're looking at depression, suicidal thoughts, um, tearfulness, crying, weeping. This is with anxiety as well. Um, this is with depression, but can also oh. be with anxiety. So we're looking at kind of like these symptoms. Anxiety, we are we're also looking at we, what we call like diagnostic features. Mm. So anxiety is not is not just one diagnosis. There could be there could be a lot of different things. Obsessive compulsive disorder, for example, is an anxiety. A disorder. We can look at things like generalized anxiety. That's typically what people think of uh, when they're thinking of, um, I have really bad anxiety. And so uh, when we're looking at if this is a diagnosis, of, uh, we'll take generalized anxiety as an example. We're looking at excessive worrying, excessive nervous thinking throughout the day, almost every day. Mm. We're looking at lack of sleep, irritability. You're so anxious that um, you're, you cannot concentrate and your mind is going blank. And um, people often get very fatigued and they can also have a down mood just like in depression. Those are the things that we're really looking at when we're going to diagnose an anxiety disorder. Um, And much like depression, we want to see like, what is this preventing you from being able to do? You know, we might get anxious before a meeting or I get anxious if I had a big exam in school or whatever. But we're really looking at intensity, duration, and frequency. How intense is it? anxiety? How long is it lasting? Is it for the 15 minutes before the exam or is it for weeks straight? You know, mm. and then what is the frequency? What is the pattern of anxiety? Am I having anxiety all day long throughout the day, most days of the week, most weeks of my life? Those are the things that we start to look at when we're um, talking about maybe more colloquial term of anxiety and actually more of a clinical issue. Do you think that there's any issue at all with kind of people addressing these feelings of nervousness 15 minutes before a meeting as anxiety and repeating that to themselves? I think it would have to depend on what works for the person. If the person is getting really anxious like before a meeting and focusing on the anxiety um, is making them more anxious, then we got to look at things like like different coping skills. Mm. You know, can we do a little bit of meditation or progressive muscle relaxation or can you do some affirmations? Uh, Things like um, doing ice cold water on your face can be really helpful uh, because it triggers the dive reflex for humans Mm. and your heart rate will start to slow down. Um, and the thing about anxiety um, is it can be very, very physiological. People start getting tightness in their chest. They're sweating. They can't breathe. Um, and those things, if your body is telling you that there's something to be anxious about and you're kind of continuing to affirm, I'm anxious, it's telling your, it, might, it could be telling your body and your mind that there's something to be worried about. And it could sort of kind of have the reverse effect. You're starting to get more anxious. And yeah. you know what I mean? So we would kind of maybe have a discussion around that. Are there different ways that we could, you know, maybe help address this 
this type of anxiety rather than you continuing to affirm that you're feeling really anxious because that's probably just going to make it worse. We have a lot to talk about. The fact that you talked about uh, the affirmations helping, mm-hmm. the um, the meditation helping, like so many of these things are a lot of things that I believe in. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I, I believe I read somewhere too that you focus a lot on uh, emotional therapies. Yes, I do. Emotionally focused therapy. What is that? Emotionally focused therapy, the base assumption is that emotions and uh, emotions are really critical to our being. Like we're emotional, we're emotional beings. Our experiences, especially the ones that we look at in therapy, are emotional. Our distress, uh, traumas that have happened, our relationships, um, you know, deep pain has emotional components. Mm -hmm. And if we really want to look at that and work through it, we got to go from a bottom-up approach. And bottom-up is really like, working through your emotions and through doing that emotional work, it can help change your thoughts and change your behavior, Mm. which looks a little bit differently than some behavior therapies, which are looking at like changing your thoughts. Mm. So changing your thoughts is great, but if you're not changing your emotional experience, then that, then you're kind of leaving a whole part behind. I know that there's a lot of regulations around sharing experiences that you've had in Mm -hmm. the field and things like that, but can you give an example of how, you know, anxiety or depression has manifested in itself how you've seen it manifest itself mm-hmm. and essentially stop somebody from being able to perform a like daily tasks. Yeah, absolutely. And I can just speak generally on my, you know, my training and my experience and my work. Um, you know, when we look at things like major depression, um, it's a range. We can have mild, moderate, or severe, or we can have like maybe unspecified. Maybe we um, haven't indicated it, or maybe it kind of goes on a spectrum for that individual person. But we look at people being so depressed. There's these things that we talk about in in depression called the impossible tasks. And that could be from like checking voicemails on the phone to like going out and getting the mail. Those things could become impossible for somebody with depression. The lethargy and the lack of motivation is so severe that sometimes people, you know, cannot get out of bed. Um, Their self-care is just totally shot where they're not taking a shower. They're not uh, buying groceries. They aren't getting haircuts. Um, Mm. It could be really severe. It's um, major depression is one of the world's uh, leading um, causes of disability. Let's say somebody doesn't want to see you yet. (laughs) That happens. Or anybody yet. Right. You know what I mean? Um, Are there some things that someone can do on their own when they start to recognize that they are feeling a certain way to, you know, help them work past some of these emotions or feelings? Yeah, absolutely. As a therapist, I see a lot of people who are at different points in their journey, just like I was. You know, there was a time when I wasn't ready to go to therapy and I had to be at the right place in my like emotional, mental, spiritual growth to be uh, ready to kind of do some self-confrontation and Mm self-examination. Um, and a certain set of circumstances had to occur in order for me to get to that place. And not everybody is there and that's okay. Right. And so you ask like, maybe somebody's not ready to go to therapy and that's okay. Um, things that take care of your mind and body are super important. Like, um, eating well, being outside, having regular exercise, There's a lot of research that says that um, aerobic exercise and cardio exercise can be almost as effective as um, uh, medication for depression. Mm. But as I mentioned earlier, depression really affects energy. And so it's really hard for people to have a regular exercise routine when they're they're feeling depressed. The other thing too, 
one of the biggest things in self-care truly, we hear we hear about this term self-care is removing yourself from toxic relationships. Mm. It wreaks havoc on our brains and our bodies to be in unhealthy toxic relationships. It's such a, such a stressor for us. It could actually, you know, kickstart things like really, um, really bad anxiety, really bad depression. One of the best things we could do for ourselves, you know, especially if we're not ready to go to therapy, is like take a look at your relationships. Mm. Um, if there are people in your life that are drawing out more energy than they're putting in, then we got to take a look at those and see if there, you know, could be some adjustments made. Right. That's like the biggest thing that I'm, I believe in is really looking at who you're surrounding yourself mm-hmm. with. There was a girl on the podcast not too long ago, and she said something along the lines of, uh, you can never heal from trauma if you're always surrounded by it. Yeah. It's a good one, right? Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> that is a good quote. I might use that. <laughs> Just in your next session yeah, or something like there that. There you go. Um, Man, that's nuts. So what do you, like, are there things that you do to mm-hmm. kind of stay level? I mean, you're dealing with a lot. You're dealing with other people's emotions. Yeah. You can only imagine that you have a certain amount of, like, empathy for these people and sympathy for them to where this is affecting you on a daily basis. Yeah. So what, do you have, like, a, a routine or something that you mm-hmm. go through to make sure that you're even? Yeah. Like you said earlier, you can have conversation, like, a you know, hours con- conversation about certain things. And this is an area that I that I could talk about a lot because it is like different jobs have different types of labors. Some are manual, you know, some are mental, some are creative. Mm. Um, and mine is very emotional. My work is very, very emotional. It's a, it's very mental. And so, yeah, so it can, it can be taxing. It can be very tiring. There is a, you know, kind of a cliche that everybody says in the therapy world and it's every good therapist has a good therapist who has a good therapist, right? It's essential. It's super essential for us to be doing our own work and for us to be on the couch as well and for looking at ourselves and and looking at our intentions. It only helps us be more intentional beings with our clients. It only helps us do better work if we can come really close and contact our clients but not be getting sucked in, you know, and to, to the point where we're not doing our job very well. So that's probably number one. Um, And then number two is is really staying connected to my loved ones, Um, spending time with them, talking with them, being around them. You know, if I, if I'm feeling down or uh, my, my mind and my body will tell me, you know, it'll it'll tell me if I, if I need to be around um, people that bring me joy. And then I think the last one is, I've sort of noticed this a little bit um, in the past couple of years is my work is very, very spiritual to me my work with people feels spiritual. And so it like really does bring a sense of fulfillment. I believe that everybody that sees me, sees me for a reason and can I can learn from or they can teach me something. And that helps. That helps when I have really, really tough cases, really tough clients. I think, um, what could I learn from this person? You know, why is this, why did this person come to me? And so I think those things are, are my self-care and that's what I do to take care of myself. So you mentioned that your body or your mind will tell you that you need to spend time with mm-hmm. loved ones and that's how you like re-energize yourself. Um, what does that actually feel like to you? So I think um, to go full, full circle here, I think to really understand and maybe, you know, people people will maybe push back against this, but I think to really understand who we are, like the core of who we are as people, we do need a little bit of therapy because we like have to pull pull back the layers and kind of examine like, who am I? What are like the factors of my personality? What are my inner motives and emotions? And it's only then do we start to realize when things are off. 
And so I'll know if I start, I'm generally pretty like positive for the most part, like kind of pretty happy. I can kind of get, get out of bed fairly easily and, and kind of get my day going. I'm definitely not a morning person. So it takes like 10 minutes, but I'm, I'm usually like not dragging, you know? Sure. So if those things start to happen, I know like I'm really dragging, I'm feeling really distracted or I'm not wanting to be around people then those are the things that will tell me like, okay, something's up. I either I'm, I'm overworking or I'm not doing the self-care. My relationship might be feeling a little off and I need to tend to it. Mm-hmm. And so I try really hard to kind of be attuned to sort of like who I am as a person and what I need. As I mentioned earlier, the listener knows that I'm all about positive thinking your way through things, mm-hmm. which I think is, you know, uh, for me, it's worked to a certain... I think it's worse. Like, shit. I don't don't know. Um, We'll talk about that later. Yeah. That's actually, you know. So, however, I I can only imagine that there's a dark side to to doing that. You know what I mean? Like, on the opposite side of that, I'm also a realist. Like, I, I can, you know, of course, like, I can try and manifest this and positive think this. But there sometimes things fail. Sometimes things don't work. And I'm, and I know that. Um, so, how do we like start to draw the line between being ultra positive and delusional? I like this question. I, 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 I really do because I think, you know, the, the people who post a lot of the positive quotes on Instagram and things like that might be mad at me. And I do too. Like I post, you know, yeah. motivational things. And That's like my entire things. Instagram. Really? Oh, shoot. Okay. Sorry. No, please. <laughs> like the whole reason I did this was because yeah. I didn't want to knock, I didn't want to just knock on people who overuse anxiety yeah. and depression too much. Yeah. I really, I'm, <laughs> I'm really open to you ripping me apart okay. right now. This is yeah. a roast. No, we won't roast. <laughs> And hey, though that like that works for some people, I think you know, or that's their aesthetic or whatever it is, you know. And um, I haven't been very attentive to my Instagram in, in a while, but um, we'll talk my, about that. Okay, later. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I might need some help with my digital presence. But I think like mine, it's like if we're only seeing, um, if we're only being positive, and if everything's good and and everything's sunshine and rainbows, we're missing so much, like. Um, embracing pain brings growth, brings change and brings new experiences. Why can't we? Like, why can't we embrace pain? Why can't we live through pain and and celebrate it? You know, like this was a painful experience and I got through it and I learned so much about it. And like, here's a quote about pain, like what it feels like to be in pain, you know? So I, so my, my camp might be a little bit more you know, I'm more in the integrative area. Like I want to integrate both positive experiences um, and happiness with with the fact that emotional pain does bring does bring us growth. Do you feel like positive perspectives can actually help anxiety and depression if used properly? Yeah, definitely. It's I think like, like it, it's funny. It's not easy for people to just like start looking at that. Yeah, like being like, I can't just see the bright side. I don't understand that because I can always do it. But I think I've trained myself to it or maybe I was born like that. Yeah. But have you ever tried to train somebody to start looking at the bright side of things type, you know? Yeah. I know that's really washed and you went through a lot of school for me to say <laughs> the bright side, yeah. but like… What is the right side? <laughs> yeah. Um. Yes and no. So again, like the good thing about seeing a professional therapist is that, you, hope, you know, I mean, I know that their, their therapies all, you know, every therapist is different. Um, but… You're hopefully getting somebody that really um, appreciates like you as a unique person. And some people uh, thinking positively about stuff um, is not going to be helpful. And it could even be like offensive Mm -hmm. and invalidating. Like you'd said, like, I don't see the bright side of things. 
it is only through you know the validation of of the pain um, and and affirmation of the of the pain and the trauma that we can then move you know move through it rather than around it to get to the bright side. Mm. You know, we gotta we gotta go through the mud so then we can get to kind of you know where the sunshine and and the grass is. I think that that's you know can definitely be the case if some if thinking positively for people really works for them. That's wonderful. You, and then you spoke to the to the you know the musing. Could it be delusional? Um, yeah, you know it could in the sense of like denial. Like, mm. are you denying? And I see this all the time. You know, with my with my guys and with my families is. Um, are you are you kind of refusing to acknowledge that this is reality, no matter how we contextualize it mm. and no matter what frame we put on it, this is a reality and it can get a little bit, you know, blurry. I love that you brought out that some people can't see the bright side, that mm-hmm. it could be offensive to them yeah. if you ask them to look at it mm-hmm. before doing the, the work in the mud. Right? Yeah, definitely. What does some of that work look like? It's different for um, every person, but that looks like a lot of emotional work. Uh, going, sometimes we have to, you know, a lot of people, um, bless their heart, you know, a lot of therapy critics will be like, what is talking going to do, you know, or, or why do I have to talk about the past? It's like, you, you know, when you have to talk about the past, when you're stuck there Mm. and when it brings up so much pain, um, or when there's so much unresolved stuff that's there, um, then we got to kind of go back and, um, process, process things in therapy. And what that really looks like is, Kind of um, taking a taking an assessment, taking a review of major life experiences, um, significant relationships and events, and then organizing them. You know, where does this go? Was this painful? Uh, was this helpful? Uh, was this really scary? Um, was this the worst event that's ever happened to you? Like, how do you organize it? What do we think about it? What do we feel about it? And then later down the road, you know, we have our reflections on it. Um, how did you grow from that? Yeah. Is there a bright side? So we get there through that process. And that, of course, takes different time, you know, different lengths of time for different people. What are some of the things that somebody can do on a regular basis that would maybe not be preventative, so to speak, but mm-hmm. maybe start working toward a more uh, healthy perspective on their circumstances? Like I've been saying, you know, life is not easy. And so I think one of the, I, I do really enjoy mindfulness a lot. And a lot of people are like, okay, like, What's mindfulness to you? Mindfulness to me is like emotional presence, right? Mm. Like if something's causing you pain and anxiety, like let it cause you pain and anxiety and and then let it go. Like let it pass. Right? Do you have an exercise for that? You know, I think I do. Like in like a, I can definitely find one. Yeah. Are you looking for one? No, I mean, I think that's such an interesting thing. I have like this weird rule mm-hmm. in my head where it's like, you can be sad and depressed and whatever about it for two days, then you got to move the fuck on. Yeah. Because, pardon my language, mm-hmm. it's my show. I can curse. But yeah. <laughs> Hopefully I can too. <laughs> yeah, no, you definitely can. But like for me, it's just like, I do sit in that, you know mm-hmm. what I mean? But then, because I feel like I do need to recognize that, definitely. understand this perspective, try to understand why I'm doing mm-hmm. those things. But then at one point, I just got to let it go. I feel like it's hard for people to get to the let it go place. Yeah. You know? Definitely. So that's why I was asking, is there like an exercise that somebody can start to get closer to that, you know, yeah. um, without potentially having to see a therapist? I personally believe everybody should see a therapist yeah. as well. But Yeah, me too. <laughs> Hopefully people that are listening will feel um, that therapy is like invaluable. And yeah, like me- mindfulness is it free, you know, like 
a really popular therapy model that incorporates a lot of mindfulness um, is dialectical behavioral therapy. It's uh, DBT is the abbreviation. They have a whole uh, module on mindfulness. So kind of learning the philosophy, kind of the underpinnings of, of mindfulness and and how it can help us in emotion regulation. Mm. And we don't need to see a professional therapist, you know, to do those things. And so, um, you know, what what is taking an inventory, you know, like in terms of your um, your thoughts and your emotions and your body state, like what's actually happening for you right now, mm. moment to moment, what are you feeling? Um, and what that can do is that really, you know, brings us present. So we're not, because if we're not, like if we're living in the future with anxiety or living in the past with with regret and with, you know, resentment and, and pain and things like that, where you lose so much of the moment. Mm. And so that mindfulness kind of just brings us back, um, brings us back to, to, to being engaged and to kind of being right here where we need to be. So it's like taking time for yourself and addressing how you feel in that moment can be mindfulness, right? Yeah, a- absolutely. Just taking that personal inventory. And would you consider that to be meditation as well? Yeah, definitely. That would fall into... Uh, meditation people, I think, have different conceptualizations of meditation, which is, you know, right on, uh, whatever works. And then things like guided imagery, too, mm. a little different, but kind of in the same, uh, kind of under the same umbrella. Do you meditate yourself? I don't so much right now. Um, I do uh, do like a lot of mindfulness, mm. um, but no, like particularly like breathing exercises and things like that, like on a daily basis. I haven't, I have in the past, but none right now. Sure. I love that. Um, I have a couple questions that came in through Instagram, actually. I let some. Uh, I let Instagram know that we were going to be talking with sure. you today. You're also a marriage and family therapist. Yes, right? I am. Um, we have a couple questions about relationships, which I think is great. Cool. Um, let's hear it. Uh, so let's start with, well, we talked a little bit about what are things you can do to combat depression that don't rely on medication. Mm-hmm. Um, since we did answer that question, I'm curious about your thoughts on you know prescription drugs to treat depression and anxiety. We know that, so there's a lot of, oh, I can answer this question so many ways. <laughs> <laughs> there's a lot of misconceptions on anxiety. There's a lot of uh, there's even like there's so much so much on on Instagram and um, and you know Facebook and the blogs and things like that where there's like this chemical imbalance sort of theory and there's no um, people are going to be so mad at me for saying this but there's no really strong research that supports that the, that depression comes from a, from from a chemical imbalance. Thank you. So there's no, so, there, so there's that. not strong evidence, yeah. you know, people have the, the, the serotonin uh, theory of depression. And so, so are you saying that a lot of it is circumstantial? Um, no. So it, that's not what it means. So it doesn't mean that there's not a physiological or a brain basis to, to depression. Mm. Cause if it was, if it was purely serotonin or, or, or majorly serotonin, then people that would take SSRIs, we would see like a huge, um, you know, the effectiveness would be 80, 90, a hundred percent. And it's not, Yeah, it's about 33 to 35%. Yeah. So, um, yeah, so, so uh, medication can be effective. So things like depression, um, a a SSRI, which is a selective serotonin reputate inhibitor, um, it can be effective Uh, that in combination with psychotherapy tends to be the most effective. Mm. And those things in combination with like eating, uh, well, um, not eating foods that are really high in saturated fat and then exercising, like getting your heart pumping and being outside, um, can look like maybe like a, um, a treatment plan for people that have depression. So, so medication, I'm a huge proponent of medication. I worked with a psychiatrist for almost three years. 
Um, I work in a residential treatment program where we have a psychiatrist and, and they're great. Um, but you know, it all depends on your biochemistry. It depends on your symptoms. It depends on what you're doing outside of the medication and medication also is not going to treat the underlying symptoms. Right. So SSRIs though, those should be almost, uh, temporary to get somebody back to even, and then maybe working through the emotional things. Yeah. Cause they shouldn't be a long-term uh, solution, right? Yeah. Such a good question. So I'll just throw out some of my, you know, some of, some of the stats and evidence out there. So if somebody goes through a serious major depressive episode, which we talked about earlier, it does put them at a, at a higher risk to experiencing more episodes mm-hmm. um, throughout their lifetime. The the rate just kind of skyrockets, meaning that they'll kind of have, have more episodes in the future and it'll, it'll be what we call recurrent depression. So it could be a good idea for that person to, to maybe be on an SSRI and get it regularly um, checked and assessed to see if they need to continue on the medication. Just stopping abruptly is, is not a good idea. Um, always consult your doctor. Medication for some people whose depression is very, very chronic can really be the, can really be the ticket. Mm. And for depression, often we're looking at a lot of root causes and we want to say, like you, like you said, and make sure that you're in therapy or you're doing some work to kind of address um, some of those long-term changes. Mm. And also we see in therapy too, like um, in order to meet, like really meaningfully engage in therapy and be able to, to get out of bed, make your appointments, do the emotional work. Sometimes people do need to be on an SSRI to kind of carry them through. So then they're able to have that, you know, have that work with a therapist. Love that. So I know that this is a little bit repetitive, but as we're doing a Q and a, in your, in your opinion, what are some of the best ways to handle anxiety attacks in, in seasons of depression? Seasons of depression, we want to definitely make sure that um, we're getting professional help um, from a professional, from a licensed therapist, and that looks like an MFT or clinical social worker um, or a professional clinical counselor or, of course, a psychologist. If you're feeling recurrently depressed, please don't like hesitate to go out and and get help. If the the life coaching and the yoga is not working, um, you know, it's okay. Like, you know, it's okay to talk is what I like to say. Go see a professional therapist. There's sometimes just nothing can replace that for somebody mm. that that is really skilled in in diagnosing, uh, treating, assessing, and creating a treatment plan. For anxiety, some of the things that we talked about, there are those like coping skills, like learning learning mindfulness. If you're having a really bad anxiety attack, um, some sometimes uh, putting your head in a really uh, cold ice um, bucket of like ice water will, will will help because it'll slow down your breathing. It triggers the dive reflex, which we mentioned earlier. Also, if you are prone to anxiety attacks, you can keep like a, a cold ice pack in your freezer. And when you're starting to get anxious, you can put the ice pack underneath your eyes um, and on your face. Um, Another thing that I really like to uh, use, I'm a huge fan of essential oils. Um, Work for some people, don't work for others. But what they do work for is helping us stay present. Because when we're really anxious, our brain is just sort sort of, people think that the brain goes offline when we're anxious. um, But not necessarily. It's still online. But anxiety is kind of overriding it a little bit. And so whatever helps bring us back into the moment. And so things like essential oils, like really calming smells, remind your body. Because remember, it's like feeling like it's under attack. Remind mm-hmm. your body that it's here. Yeah, It's present. You know, um, you can kind of connect with the moment. And sometimes that helps too. I love that you said when the uh, when the yoga and the, and the life coach stop working. <laughs> Nothing against <laughs> yoga and life coaching, of course. No, but, but that's perfect though. Because yeah. that's a lot of people's therapy today. Right, like for absolutely. me, it's like I, I do... Not yoga, but you know, I'll exercise most days to 
like, I don't know, preventative right. type of thing. If it's working, it's working. It's when it's not working, you know. How I love this question. How can we start to support someone who's someone else who's who struggles with anxiety and depression mm-hmm. outside of see a therapist? Yeah. I love this question too. Um, because I think it starts with uh destigmatizing um, you know, mental health and therapy. Um, I'm I have no absolutely no shame or embarrassment about seeing a therapist. Um, I feel like it would be a disservice to my clients if I didn't. Um, so I've, I'll, I'll talk about it. Um, I'll talk about it and then I'll find, um, that people will then seek me out like friends and family. Um, you know, I know that you're a therapist. I know that you see a therapist. Like, do you know if there's anybody that, um, would be able to see me? So sometimes, um, I think we have to be conscious of like our dialogue and our wording. If we never, ever, ever talk about mental health to our friends and family, um, you know, we'll talk about our, we'll, we'll talk about like, if we have got a hurt leg, you know, we have no problem talking about it to cousins and aunts and uncles and friends. Um, if we're not feeling well, we've got the flu, it'll come up in conversation, but people aren't like that with mental health or they'll sort of hide it. And, um, silence is really what creates stigma. Mm. So if anything, like if you see a friend struggling, like just ask, um, you know, Hey, you know, I, notice that you're you're down or I'm noticing that you're not you know hanging out as much or you're not coming out out of the house um you know do you need to talk or do you want to talk it's okay to, to you know to talk about mental health or whatever's going on just simply words sometimes can be really powerful and the fact that you're noticing the fact that you're noticing I think is is like the most powerful thing this is kind of an interesting question for me from from your perspective does social media play a part in failing marriages for millennials specifically? I don't even think it's millennials because there's such thing as like, I mean, 40, 50-year-olds yeah. are on social media. Yeah, but. sometimes I get confused. I'm like, I'm almost 29. Am I a millennial? I don't know. Yes. Yeah, yeah I think so, right? Yeah. It's like 1989 mm-hmm. and then the cutoff or something. Yeah, I think it, I think it can. So um, there has been some research to show that like excessive social media use um, can be harmful to mental health. Mm-hmm. And we have to remember too, um, like to bring in that word again, context, we have to bring in context too. For some people, social media, like for example, um, Facebook groups mm-hmm. are like people's support networks. You know, um, you know, for example, moms going through, they maybe they have a son or a daughter going through addiction and they'll join a Facebook group of, um, you know, other, other parents going through that. And that can be what improves their mental health. Right. So it really depends, right? Um, but when we're using, um, we see a lot of things like even where I work, um, social media addiction and things like that. Um, and then, uh, responsibilities are falling to the wayside. People mm. are spending eight, nine, 10, 11, 12 hours on the phone. Um, or they become so disconnected with, um, sort of who they are and they're like kind of, you know, focused on an image. And when we sort of disown our own authentic self, you know, in favor of presenting um, whoever we want to be to the world, that can be very, very, very harmful, yeah. very harmful to ourselves, especially when we're when we're looking at other people who we are constantly comparing ourselves to. And then mm. we start seeing things like our self-esteem being affected. Mm. So those are kind of the ways that social media can come into play in mental health. Do you consciously not use social media that often to avoid this? Like use personally? Yeah, I do use social media. Um, I When I do use it, it tends to be on the weekends. But like during the week, I'm so busy with work that I don't go on it often. 
Um, and I am, I do kind of tend to be a little bit conscious of who I follow. So the majority of people who I follow are friends and family or like friends of friends that I kind of know. And like, um, I'm very careful at following people that have what I believe are harmful, um, you know, beliefs or, um, you know, things that I, you know, don't like to read or see. Um, and I, I love, I mean, I'm, a person, of course, and I love uh, fashion and I love clothes and makeup and things like that. But I, I follow a few accounts here or there. You know, that's not what my feed is full of. It's typically like my family and friends, which I mentioned before is, you know, what what I'm really about. Sure. So I'm a little bit, that's kind of maybe my um, my self-care around social media is I'm a little conscious of who, who I'm following, what Listen, I'm seeing every day. Yeah, I uh, I consciously unfollowed a ton of like Instagram models. Mm, I mean, mm-hmm. I'm a guy, so like, pretty girls are nice to look at. Totally. Um, but I consciously not only for a guy, girls like to look at pretty girls too. Sure, right. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> um, but I did that not because of it. Like, you know, luckily my fiance is like she understands. Like, she's mm-hmm. not crazy about anything like that. Um, crazy is also another weird word to talk to say in front of a psychologist. Yeah. But you know what I mean. Um, but it was really just because I felt like it was setting an unrealistic. Uh, benchmark for beauty and I unfollowed all of them and replaced them with like yeah. animals yeah there you animals go animals are awesome totally crazy stuff I also love animals and like little like nature I like like cooking I'm a terrible cook um, my boyfriend knows that um, but I you know things that are like I enjoy wa- it's like super soothing to me to watch like a <laughs> tiramisu boyfriend. cake being made your boyfriend knows that you're a bad that you're not yeah, a good he, cook no yeah because he cooks all of all of the food when we eat together I just think it's funny it's like we've tried and We've concluded that it's yeah, bad. Yeah, totally. And not, you know, <laughs> hey, everyone has different strengths. <laughs> we have another question here, which I think sure. is interesting too. Uh, how do you coach people through jealousy in the current climate of social media? Sure. Jealousy. So we could talk about jealousy in uh, comparison to, um, you know, the abstract Instagram model. Like you were saying, people, we have no idea who they really are. We've never met them. Mm. They're living in Australia or something like that you know, and we don't know any facets of their personality. We don't know anything about their pain. We don't know anything about things that they've been through. And it's like literally just their body and their clothes and their expensive things that we're jealous of. You know, that's that's one thing versus maybe we're looking at things like uh, jealousy in a relationship mm-hmm. because that person, like you, like you mentioned, maybe there's a, a boyfriend that is looking at a lot of models or a lot of pretty cute girls on social media um, and then that can also breed jealousy too. And I, I see that I've seen that in my office before. And this is maybe a, a touchy subject or a sensitive subject for some people. Again, context means a lot. So if the relationship is really, really stressed by a partner being really jealous of the way that another partner uses social media, um, then we got to address uh, what is really driving that jealousy. Like what's really going on in the relationship to where that person is feeling really insecure or threatened or uncomfortable um, about what's going on, you know, the, the partner's social media use and how do we kind of look at, validate and like address that. Um, a lot of people have have feelings about that. You know, I'll, I'll do whatever I want. I, I can look at whoever I want. I can follow whoever I want. It's like, okay, I'm all for, you know, building our sense of self. But um, if it's really affecting your relationship, we got to take a look at that. That's such an, I love that you said that too, because like in, at least in what comes through my feed, there's a lot of like self-love things. And I mm-hmm. promote a lot of self-love things. Yeah. However, the other side of that is like self-love until it's hurting somebody. Yeah. Right? So. 
I don't know. How can we can we start to be more aware about that? Like, how can somebody be? How can somebody balance the idea of look? I'm going to do the things that make me happy, mm-hmm. you know, but it it can't hurt somebody else. Like, it's such a weird line to me. Yeah, like uh, I'm aware of it, but how to explain that properly? Like, you might be better. Therapy with me looks a lot like a whole lot of like looking at this process and talking about it. I come from the idea that. Us as people, we have our own unique parts. We have our own like um, value systems. We have our own like sort of deep needs and we have what naturally feels healthy for us. Mm-hmm. And if we pay it, pay enough attention and we pay more attention to you know ourselves and less attention to what somebody else wants, if we really tune into who we are, then we kind of we kind of know what we want and what's healthy for us. You know when something's unhealthy. Sometimes people ignore it or they cut it off or they deny that it's unhealthy, like a relationship. Um, or like drinking all the time. Totally. It's like, I'm living my best life. Yeah. It's like, no, you're not. Mm, yeah. You know something's going on, right? It's uh. like as adults, we have, I, I feel like the vast majority of us, of course, there's some exceptions, have the capacity to be self, um, you know, propelled, to be able to control the trajectory of their life and to know what's healthy for us. And so um, when we get into a relationship, um, obviously adjustments have to be made because we're in a relationship. One of my very favorite family therapists, there's a, I hope I don't butcher this quote, but he says, there's no more important contract in marriages than the permission to disagree Mm. because it's what the fact that you have differences and still connect and contact each other is what intimacy is. It's not being the same person. It's not folding to whatever that person wants. It's not letting that other person, you know, control your life. It's like I'm an individual and an adult and you're an individual and another adult um, and we get to enjoy each other. And I get to be curious about you and you're curious about me and like how lovely is that? But it doesn't mean that I'm just self-indulgent and I do all these things that are hurting you and – you come to me and tell me and I'm like, well, whatever, I'm just doing me. It's self-love, right? Yeah. It's like, no, if I'm going to be like a mature adult, I have to, I have to hear you on that. I have to really be open and say like, okay, like maybe, like maybe I need to work on that. Yeah. You know, but that takes courage. That takes courage to be vulnerable and to have those conversations, but they have to be had. Yeah. I think it's a weird culture that we live in. I don't think it's, uh, I don't think it's unique to like Orange County or anything like that too. However, I I do feel like it's amplified here where there's uh, a little too much of like the indulgence, Mm -hmm. self-love thing to where it is hurting other people. Um, And I'm hoping that more people are being conscious of what their actions, the impact that their actions have on other people, even if they aren't in a relationship. Yeah, You know what I mean? Totally. If I drink too much and I come in hungover, I can't support my team on like, you know, on a call they might have yeah. with a client or whatever it is, but yeah, I, I tell my my guys or I say uh, my guys because my paces is, is all young males, but I'll tell my guys or the, the people I work with in my practice is like, if we're not open to other feedback from other people, like we're missing like a whole source of information that we could use to grow. Mm-hmm. And we do, we do hurt people in relationships. We, we're self loving, like we hurt our partners, we disappoint our partners, uh, we abandon them when we don't mean to, you know, they're offended by us sometimes, sometimes trust is broken, that's inevitable, um, but we have to be open to owning that, to taking a responsibility over it, having a conversation and working through it. Earlier, you you mentioned how toxic relationships, you know, that's one of the things that somebody mm-hmm. can, can maybe work on to start improving their circumstance, things like this, um, and their 
mental health. Is mm-hmm. that correct? Mm-hmm. Okay, cool. Um, this is a tough one, I think, for a lot of people because those toxic relationships could be their mother. They could be their friends of 20 years. Yeah. Um, you know, or it could just be somebody that they feel as if they're in love with. They've been, to, how many times have you heard the story? We've been together for four years. Like, cool. I want to make it work. Like, da 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 da. Yeah. This is an important one, I think, because mm-hmm. this is, I think this is the, this is the number one thing that changed my life was changing the people that I hung around with. Yeah, absolutely. So, um, I hate to beat a dead horse. I don't think we are, but. <laughs> Hope not. Hopefully people are still listening. Yeah, part, <laughs> they definitely are. <laughs> okay, good. <laughs> um, how, part one, how can we um, identify some of those toxic relationships? Yeah, absolutely. And then part two is going to be, what's a healthy way to remove ourselves from those toxic mm-hmm. relationships? Okay. So um, identifying a toxic relationship, um, I mean, could look like a lot of things. Uh, One of those things we spoke earlier is when a relationship is um, drawing out way more energy, and that could be like our spiritual energy, our mental energy, our financial energy, um, you know, Mm. our, our resources way more than it's bringing in. Because uh, sometimes relationships, like, for example, a parent and a child relationship is not really equal and it's really never going to be equal because it's a parent and a child, right? And so the, like, exchange isn't going to look equal, but on overall is the person kind of putting in um, and is the other person kind of receiving? Mm -hmm. Is there a—are they bringing in energy and putting out energy? Mm -hmm. Um, If it's—if you kind of look at a relationship and it's like, man, I'm always— um, attentive to that person and engaged with that person. And that person very rarely is attentive or engaged with me. Um, that That's kind of one process we look at. Another one is if we look at um, what is termed, there's a lot of different terms for this, um, but we look at things like codependency um, or I call it distra- destructive dependency. Um, I didn't create that word, um, but I use that word. Um, destructive dependency or, um, you know, just an, an emotionally toxic relationship is if you're sort of the basis of the relationship is like taking care of the other person, um, enabling the other person to be unhealthy, mm. um, you know, allowing um, that other person to, um, you know, negatively influence your life and not, you know, not really, we talked earlier about being fulfilled as a person and kind of getting what you need and are you staying in a relationship that is not fulfilling for you? It is not healthy. And you you spoke to that. Well, people will say like, oh, well, I'm in, a, I, I love him or I've been in, a, I've, been, I've been there for five years. Yeah. And it's like, you can use that excuse and you will go over and over and over and over again. You've been with a person for five years and that person is not fulfilling your needs. And you've, maybe you've asked, maybe you've yelled, maybe you've shouted up from the rooftops. And if things aren't changing, you'll still be going around the same circle, the same Mm. carousel, you know? Um, And so I have to have that conversation with my patients sometimes is yes, he loves you. And at some times um, it becomes irrelevant. Heavy. Mm -hmm. How can we, let's say it is our mom that we have to kind of distance ourselves Mm -hmm. from somebody that we love, if we were with them for five years, how can we in a healthy way start to detach ourselves from those situations? Yeah. So this is a hard one too. There's like so many quotes that I've come across um, that are like, you know, cut, uh, I don't know, like I'll cut people off or like cut people out if 
you know, doesn't matter family, family is family, but like just cut them off if they're unhealthy. Mm-hmm. Um, yes, it's true, I guess, literally. But if you look at emotionally, um, sometimes just a just an abrupt um, cutting off of a relationship actually creates more pain um, because it remains unresolved, mm-hmm. you know? And so if we, um, what we call in, in therapy and just emotionally cut off from that person without addressing the pain in that relationship or... Um, you know, whatever has happened in the relationship to put it in the state that it was in. Um, what we see happen is we'll then rework those issues with somebody else in the future mm. because we haven't addressed them. So we got to take a look at that of have I tried to address this issue with with this person? Um, you know, say, for example, um, the person has been very critical of us and very hurtful and has said maybe very mean and abusive things. And have we said something, you know, what you're saying hurts me. Okay. Or when you say this, I hear I hear X, Y, Z and, and it hurts. I don't like it. And then does the person continue to do that? Mm-hmm. Because our responsibility as an adult is I, I got to communicate that, right? Yeah. And then you know, and so it becomes your responsibility if you want to continue to do the thing that, that hurts me. So if we've had that conversation, maybe a couple of times and nothing's changed, by all means, like, you know, do the self-love part and say, hey, I've, I've said this before and nothing is changing. And for my own self, I got to go. You know, this relationship is over. I love that. Two questions left. We did have mm-hmm. one more question from the internet. Yeah. Are there any books or anything that you recommend for uh, people? Let's, let's say one book for anxiety and depression and another book for relationships. Are there anything that sticks out to you that you could recommend to someone? I might have to think about that one for a little bit because there's a lot and my brain is full of uh, books that I've read as a clinician, you know, and as a student. Um, I mean, a lot of people, uh, Brene Brown is so popular on social media. So crazy. I had a feeling you're going to say that for some reason. Yeah. So she's a... She's a really wonderful writer and really, really a wonderful person. I've never met her, of course, but um, I do do believe in a lot of her ideas. Um, and so her books are like super accessible. They're not clinic clinically languaged at all. They're really for the average person. And so, um, and she um, talks a lot about vulnerability, which I'm really, really um, an advocate for. So yeah, so I think that would be a good place to start. As for um, anxiety and depression, I might have to take a quick look and then maybe I can like send you some links and you can link sure. them for your listeners. Yeah, that'd be awesome. Mm-hmm. Um, so before I ask you the last question for today, uh, if somebody wants to connect with you after listening to the show, where mm-hmm. can they find you? Sure. Um, so I have a website. It's super easy. It's just my first and last name. Um, so it's uh, www.nataliezaragoza.com. Uh, so it's N-A-T-A-L-I-E. Uh, Z like zebra, A R A G O Z A, and that's kind of has my contact info and where I'm located and a little bit about me. Awesome, I love it. Um, so, well, final question for today: If you could wrap up your life's mission into one statement, what would it be? Um, I don't want people to be afraid of uh, pain and painful experiences. Um, I want people to know that um, we we can work through them, like. The human spirit um, is recoverable, you know, um, and it's okay to talk. Like, it's okay to talk. It's okay to go see a therapist. It's definitely the best decision that I've ever made in my life. And I just really hope that people see it as um, as normal, normal and super, super valuable. 
To the listener, we really appreciate your time and attention. If you love the episode, we would dig a five-star review. If you didn't like the episode that much, feel free to stick it to us. But subscribe anyway, because we're going to have a lot of incredible people just like Dr. Natalie Zaragoza back on the show. Thanks again. Thank you so much. Yeah.